Welcome back, everyone, to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner, joined by beat reporter Ted Colfin. Coming up, we'll hear from Red Wings nemesis Rick Vive, the former Maple Leaf, takes a bit of a shot at Detroit Murder City in our interview about his new book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and in Life. But first, Ted, in today's paper, a story you can find online at DetroitNews.com, you projected the Red Wings' 23-man roster and taxi squad. What was that like, picking the opening night roster? I'll tell you what, Mark. I mean, if, if you look at it, the positions are fairly set. I mean, mm-hmm. if anything, I think it's going to be a battle for playing time and what line is somebody on and what – responsibilities, roles, is he going to be on a power play or a penalty kill or whatnot? I think the roster spots are fairly set. It's just going to be a battle for playing time. And Mm -hmm. I tell you what, looking at it a little bit further, Jeff Blaschel has a lot of versatility on his hand. There's a lot of players who can play a multiple, multiple ways, multiple roles, uh, multiple positions. So that's uh, that in itself is a big improvement over last season. Um, one area that's going to be a little bit interesting is how obviously they use the taxi squad. I mean, because of the, this shortened pandemic season, NHL is allowing teams to carry four to six extra guys. Uh, it's, it's going to be a real. It's going to be a taxi squad, almost of a like a black aces type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of how you how are you going to use it? Are you going to put younger players there, maybe a little older players. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch how all the 31 di- different teams use that position, you know, those positions. There's a variety of ways you can go. Uh, I think the wing, the wings have five or six people who are not, who are waiver exempt. So you don't have to worry about losing them because you do have to put the player on waivers before you put them on a squad. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the direction they go. But at the same time, boy, you want some of those kids playing regularly. So it'll be interesting to watch. There will obviously there'll be injuries. There are gonna be a lot of injuries because of this compact schedule. And you know, you hope you hate to see it, but you probably are gonna see some COVID issues or, and whatnot. So there'll be a lot of <laughs> there has to be a lot of roster flexibility. And they have the there's a there's a lot of intriguing people there, a lot of intriguing young players that are looking for a chance. Uh, let's get the, let's get, let's drop the puck, Mark. Oh my God. It seems like we've been talking about this for last, speculating about this season for the last six months or so. Let's finally get to play some hockey here soon. Yes. So much speculation. Finally, the wings will report to camp on Thursday. They're on the ice Friday and then the best 23 players and those taxi squad players will open the regular season at Little Caesars on January the 14th against the Hurricanes. Here now, Ted, is your question to Coach Jeff Blaschel this week about facing teams like the Hurricanes in the new Central Division. Our next question is from Ted Colton with the Detroit News. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Happy holidays. Yeah, to you as well, Ted. Hey, talk about the divisional alignment and the unique challenges, pros and cons, I guess, of playing those teams just, you know, seven or eight teams here, seven or eight games a year. I mean, how challenging is that going to be? Uh, different. You know, it's different. I think um, there's probably, pro, like you said, pros and cons to it. Um, 
you know, I think everybody's in a similar boat. So obviously it's equal in that sense that we're all playing the same opponents all year long and you're going to play them uh, a number of times. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I've been in similar kind of situations in my coaching past, certainly in the American league. Uh, we played this, the same team since I think up to like 10, 11 times in a year. Um, so that that's real similar. Uh, the teams in our division, the Milwaukee's, the Chicago's, we used to play them all the time. Um, and you really get to know each other well. You get to, uh, you know, it, it, uh, the pre-scouting becomes less important. And, and honestly, just your own game becomes more important. Um, you know, it would be similar to in college when you play the same team uh, back-to-back, whether it's back-to-back nights or the same team with a day of rest in between. It's the same type of thing as, as that, you know, college or really the, the NHL playoffs. And so, you know, it's, it's different. Um, usually when you're going through the season, uh, you know, it's a new pre-scout every night. Um, you, you're not necessarily making adjustments from one game to the next uh, because of the fact you're playing a different opponent. Where in these two game sets, which is all but I think one of them, you know, or two of them, I guess, where there are two game sets from, from what we've seen in the schedule. Now, you know, you have an opportunity to potentially make adjustments as a coaching staff. And those aren't huge adjustments, maybe uh, like a, like the sport of football, but they are adjustments that can matter and so it'll be it'll be fun it'll be great to be honest with you it'll be fun to be a part of and and uh see if we can't uh uh you know help give our our group as good a possible uh position to win that that second game as we can so there you have jeff blashell facing perhaps his most difficult and challenging season his next game will be his 400th in detroit that's five years going on six years He's 41 games under 500. He's won 44% of his games. His last 500 season was Blaschel's first season with Zetterberg, Datsuk, and Cronwall. He's won everywhere he's gone, USHL, AHL. He's coached the U.S. at the Worlds, as our columnist John Neo mentioned in his column this week, only John Cooper and Paul Maurice have been with their teams longer. That is pretty amazing, don't you think, Mark? I mean, when you consider, you know, what's gone on the last couple of seasons, especially last season specifically, I don't think a lot of organizations would be as patient. What do you think? Well, looking at Steve Eiserman's background, he likes stability in Tampa Bay, It took three years before Iserman fired Guy Boucher after only 32 games back in 2013. The Lightning were off to a relatively slow pace. They were next to last in the East, about to miss the playoffs for the second straight year. Detroit, of course, has missed the playoffs for four straight years. If the Wings overachieved, Ted, I wouldn't be surprised if Iserman gave Blaschel a two-year extension. But if the Wings underachieve, I also wouldn't be surprised if a coach like Gerard Gallant could be here by March. Very true. I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, I do think there's a chance for a fairly good season this year. Uh, and mm-hmm. It's quotation marks around fairly good, and everybody's definition of that's going to be a little different. I there, I haven't, I haven't gone in totally in depth in rosters and done any or predicting or whatnot in, in terms of that. But I will say one thing: one thing off the top of my head with Chicago losing Jonathan Taze, Kirby, mm-hmm. Day, Alex, now that's a lot of offense. Talking to a few folks yesterday, I think there's a good chance the Blackhawks 
will be who the Red Wings were last season. And if that's the case, I, I don't necessarily think the Red Wings will be the Red Wings of last season. I think they can finish a little bit above Chicago, obviously, this year. So, you know, right off the bat, there should be a little bit of improvement. And you wonder how much of an improvement there would make sense to keep Jeff Blaschel. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I think obviously Steve likes the stability. I wouldn't be shocked if one way or another, Jeff Blaschel is the coach already in 2021-22 for the 21-22 season. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Steve Eiserman. You asked him about any future roster changes, maybe picking up a player like Mark Stahl in a future draft pick. But first, here's our interview with Rick Vive. Joining us now is Rick Vive, the first Maple Leaf to score 50 goals and the subject of a new book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. Rick, welcome to our Red Wings podcast. When I mention the Red Wings to you, in your 13-year NHL career, you had 441 career goals. About 10% of them, 41, were against the Red Wings. I've got three of them. Maybe you could pick your favorite goal. There was your first one against Rogie Vashon, who you met growing up in Charlottetown. There was goal number 50, the second time you scored 50 goals at Joe Louis Arena against Gilles Gilbert. And then you scored four goals at Maple Leaf Gardens against Corrado Mikolev. So there's three possibilities, uh, the things that you remember most when you, when you think of some of the goals you scored against the Red Wings. Oh, boy, I tell you, that's pretty tough. Um, you know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the one against Rogi Vashon was my first NHL goal, I believe. It was. Yeah, and I – I believe that that would probably be my favorite out of all of them. That, uh, yeah, you always remember your first NHL goal, and uh, that 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 was one that uh, that stands out more to me than than any of the other ones. Now that was at the old Pacific Coliseum. Don Lever assisted on the goal. Did you really come down and score by going? You're a right winger coming down the right side and roof a backhander. What what do you remember that about that goal? Yeah, I just remember coming down the right side, and I it was I was kind of being cut off, so I kind of went into the middle, into the high slot, and yeah, I didn't score too many on the backhand, but that <laughs> that one was a beauty. It was uh, high over the glove, and uh, I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it was. Uh, Wow, 41 years ago. Rick, what comes to mind when uh, when I mention the Red Wings to you, playing here at the old Joe Lewis Arena, uh, back at Maple Leaf Gardens, a little bit when you were with Vancouver, and later, of course, when you uh, were with the Blackhawks and the Buffalo Sabres. But what comes to mind when you think of those Toronto-Detroit games? Well, lots of brawls. <laughs> uh, lots, lots of physical play, and... Uh, uh, it, it was a great rivalry, uh, you know, just uh, not that far between the two cities and uh, the two original six teams. I actually played in the old Olympia, too, when I was with Vancouver hmm. uh, before Joe Lewis opened, I think, in uh, February or March of uh, uh, so, 19, or 2000, and, or, or sorry, 1980. Right, right. And what do you remember when you played Olympia then when you're with the with the Canucks? 
Well, it was pretty cool. Uh, you know, cause I mean, anytime you play in one of the original six buildings, uh, uh, I mean, the fans were right on top of you. And you, when you're walking from the dress room to the ice, the fans are mm -hmm. right there. You're going like kind of through a hallway. Uh, it, it was pretty cool. I mean, uh, like I say, anytime like the Montreal form, uh, uh, the gardens, uh, any of the, the Chicago stadium, any of the original six, uh, mm. arenas were, were, uh, spectacular to play in. Were the Red Wings a team that you maybe sort of follow growing up in Charlottetown? In Charlottetown, as a Maritimer, a lot of uh, fans are, uh, follow the Bruins, the Canadians. There are only six teams, of course. Where did the Red Wings rank for you, Rick, when you were growing up? Uh, probably sixth. <laughs> 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 I, I would have to say. I mean, you know, for, for us, it was uh, – it was Montreal, Toronto, for the most part, and and out there we did get some some Bruins games as well. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, so those were the three major ones. We didn't, you know, we didn't see the Rangers, Blackhawks, or Red Wings that much at all. Looking at the uh, series between the the Red Wings and the Leafs, specifically 1986-87, uh, Rick. Mm -hmm. um, you had a 3-1 lead in the series. Uh, the first two games were here at Joe Louis Arena. Game one, you had a goal and assist against Greg Stefan, and then Glenn Hanlon came in, and Hanlon was a star of that series. Game two, you had a goal, and then the Wings won game three. Game four, uh, Peter Inacek scored in overtime, and you had a 3-1 lead. What happened after that, in your opinion? You know what? I mean, I, it it's hard to say. I mean, things happen within a series sometimes and momentum changes and that, those sorts of things. And, um, I, you know, I, well, I remember game seven for, uh, really vividly because that was, uh, I had broken my hand in game six and, uh, you know, so our doctors, you know, froze it up pretty good. And, um, you know, I was able to continue playing the game, and uh, but game seven, I remember uh, our doctor who came with us was a, it wasn't a regular doctor; it was a, a younger doctor who was taking his place, and mm -hmm. and he wouldn't freeze it, <laughs> and so we had to get the Red Wings doctor to come in and freeze it, and of course, he only just kind of froze it in one spot where our doctor at home froze it you know, in several spots that would keep it frozen and, and I wouldn't feel it for, uh, you know, quite some time. And really it lasted about like a half a period, maybe three quarters of the first period. And then, you know, I didn't play the rest of the game because uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't hold my stick or anything. And it was my right hand. So um, that, that was frustrating for me. And I think we got blown out that game. I think it was, I don't know, seven one or seven two or something, and so that was frustrating. But it, I mean, within a series, there's things that happen, and there's momentum changes. And you know, uh, we won game four at home, went, went in there and lost, and now it's you know now it's three two. You know, they come back and win in our building, and 
it all comes down to game seven in Detroit and, and we weren't able to get it done. Rick, in your book, talking about game seven, yes, you definitely mentioned that freezing incident, which of course would be unheard of nowadays. You wouldn't have proper care, you know, a power forward for the Toronto Maple Leafs isn't available because of, you know, the, the trainer or the, the freezing or the regular doctor wasn't there. You also mentioned something that, um, that played a role and it's interesting because players, players know who should be in the lineup and who shouldn't be in the lineup. And you wondered why, um, you know, why the Leafs, you know, why John Brophy and, and, and GM McNamara would put Miro in a check-in, Peter's brother. He, Miro hadn't played at all. Uh, he played very little in the game. And it's almost like you were shorthanded. Now, your book doesn't suggest that you lost because of that, but it is a curious move when you look back. It's, it's sort of a gamble, you know, one of your last forwards. What are your thoughts about that when you look back and say, that's, that's just another example of some of the, some of the strange things that uh, some of the Leaf players had to deal with? Um, well, it definitely was. I mean, you know, we dealt with uh, a lot of uh, mistakes, I think, not so much by coaches, but by the general manager. But, you know, we had a lot of guys that were brought in at, at 18 years old that weren't physically or mentally uh, mature enough to play in the National Hockey League and, and should have went back to junior you know, Inichek came over, Peter's brother, or younger brother, and, and really didn't play that much. And when he did, he didn't really do a whole lot. And, you know, to, to throw him in in the seventh game when you need to win is, I mean, to me, was kind of a, a ridiculous option. Uh, you know, there were other guys that had played uh, – most of the games in, in the playoffs that year. And, and uh, all of a sudden you stick a kid in who really hadn't done much. And uh, to me, that was just another blunder. Uh, uh, I'm not sure who made that, not made that decision. I, I'm pretty sure it probably came from uh, Jerry McNamara because he was the one that brought him over from Czechoslovakia and, mm -hmm. and, you know, probably figured, oh, if he goes out and, and does anything good, then I'm going to look really, really good. And, uh, you know, not thinking about the team instead of thinking about, you know, perhaps him having a great game and, and making Jerry look really good about making that move to bring him over here. Yeah, and to be fair too, Rick, it probably wasn't fair for uh, Inichek as well to be thrown in. Uh, to that situation as well. Well, one other uh, uh, point about that series, other than Glenn Hanlon, you know, only allowed two goals in the last three games when they came back. But game six, I like your thoughts on Bob Probert. Uh, he fought Chris Kostopoulos in that game. He scored a goal. He had an assist. He was plus two. Probert had three shots. And on one of the game-winning goals, he actually went in. And I know one of the uh, strategies of the wings was to run Borja Salming. And Borja was minus two that game, minus two in game seven like you were. But game six, uh, Salming turns it over on the game-winning goal and Probert scores. Um, what was it like, though? I don't think you ever fought Bob Probert. You had over 1,400 penalty minutes in your career. But uh, – Certainly game six was one of the highlights of his career. And I wonder what your thoughts are about um, what it was like facing him. Well, I mean, it was, well, I didn't, I wasn't going to fight him. I, I, I was smart enough <laughs> not to drop the gloves with him. And uh, um, 
but but he was a big intimidating factor. There's no question about that. In fact, I just watched the uh, uh, documentary that they made on him uh, just this week, and uh, one thing that surprised me. Well, first, like I say, first of all, he he was an imposing figure, and uh, mm -hmm. he, he not only could he fight, but but he could play, and. Uh, you know, he, he played with some pretty good line mates as well, with Eisenman as a centerman and uh, at times. And you know, but I, I was surprised that uh, you know I remember I remember the border incident uh, when that happened, but I didn't realize how many other times uh, that Bob was arrested or or uh, you know had run his car into a pole uh, and that sort of thing. So. You know, just watching that uh, and what I went through, you know, throughout my uh, life, kind of, it was kind of eerie because, I mean, I didn't realize that his problems ran that deep uh, with the alcohol and the drugs and and then later on uh, the steroids and everything else. I, I had no idea. I, mm -hmm. I just, you know, I recall the border incident uh, with the cocaine and, and, you know, that's pretty much all I remember. Uh, so I guess everything else was kind of, you know, kept pretty quiet, I, I assume, uh, until the documentary came out. But he, he was a good player, and he was a very imposing figure. There's no question about that. Rick, you talk a bit about the drinking culture in the 70s, 80s, 90s. You said it swept you up in the party life and that undermines your career, you said, and your ability to be disciplined, to be a disciplined player. You mentioned your coach, Floyd Smith, one time. Your quote was, he smelt like booze from 20 feet away. You mentioned Borja Salming going to his house. He had two fridges. The second fridge was filled with bottles of vodka. You said the uh, drinking cost the lives of Dan Maloney, Greg Terrion, and Walt Podubny. Uh, Rick, I had one former Maple Leaf tell me right before Dan Maloney died, he was coming out of rehab for the last time, promising not to drink, that he was okay. He was drinking heavily, and he died at age 68. Um, you've been sober twice, once for 15 years and now nine years. Tell us what it was like with all those stories that I even just mentioned and what you just saw in the Bob Probert documentary. Well, it was kind of a... Uh, I, it was it was a culture back then. I mean, it was you know. I mean, the league was was full of older players, and uh, if you were a younger player in the league, you did what the older guys said. I mean, that's kind of the way it went. And it was like, okay, we're meeting for lunch uh, today after practice at wherever. And uh, you know, back then too, it was it was kind of like a team mentality like a pack mentality that you stuck together mm -hmm. and so you know when it was suggested that we're meeting here for lunch that meant everybody and wasn't four guys going here four guys going there you know whatever it was everybody was there and uh yeah there was there were some days where you had a beer or two and then left uh and that was okay uh but if you didn't show up it was pretty much frowned upon and uh you know and and you know unfortunately i mean i you know a lot of players got caught up in it and uh you know i i was obviously one of them but 
you know, I, I don't know um, how much better I could have been if I hadn't drank. I mean, I was misdiagnosed with, uh, or wasn't diagnosed properly for an anxiety problem when I, when I was 21 years old, or 20 years old, rather. And the only thing that, because there was no medication, uh, alcohol was what I went to uh, in order to, to help with that. And uh, it was the same as when I got on a, an airplane. That's, mm -hmm. That was the go-to. And, uh, you know, because, I mean, we didn't have science, uh, you know, science teams and, and, and what they have now that, you know, I mean, you know, there's most, most of the teams in the league probably have, they probably have their own MRI and uh, x-ray machines right in the building. And uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, I mean, it was, it was just the times. It was a different time. It was, uh, uh, it was ran differently. The owners pretty much controlled the entire league. Uh, they had Eagleson in their pocket and uh, they did whatever the hell they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. When you look back, you, you do talk in the book as well, Rick, about uh, two years of court proceedings before your impaired driving charges were dropped, about being fined $500 for being drunk on a charter flight, about having your captaincy uh, stripped partly because you slept in after a night of drinking. How do you look back at those incidents now? Well, I mean, they're unfortunate, uh, and it's on me. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't blame anybody for those uh, those things that happen. I mean, that that's on me. And, uh, uh, I mean, obviously the, the C situation, I, I thought, you know, perhaps, uh, the punishment didn't fit the crime, uh, in my personal feelings, but, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, those were mistakes that I made and, uh, ones I wish never happened, but, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't sit around and think about them every day and wonder what if I hadn't have done that, what if I hadn't have done that. No, I mean, I, it's not something that, you know, I I live my life thinking about. Like, if you do, I mean, it's going to drive you crazy. So, uh, um, you know what, it, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you wish that those things hadn't happened, but they did. And that's something you have to live with. You mentioned being named captain at age 22, the title of the book, Catch 22, the positives and the negatives. You were replacing the popular Daryl Sittler, the lease, Rick, with all those captains in the past, George Armstrong, Dave Keon, Sil Lapps, Ted Kennedy. In the book, you said in the room, uh, maybe I wasn't ready to have that authority. For example, Borea Salming was there. Uh, a similar player here in Detroit, Steve Eisenman, was named captain. He was a year younger at age 21, taking over from Danny Gare. Looking back now, um, tell us a bit about what that experience was like. I mean, first and foremost, it, it was a heck of an honor. There's no question when you look at the players who wore that uh, mm -hmm. on their uh, sweater before I did. Uh, the problem with my situation was that, you know, we. I was 22 years old, and I didn't think that I was ready to lead that team. Like I said, we had Boria. I'm, I'm, and I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know for certain, but I, I'm pretty sure uh, Harold talked to Boria about it, and Boria declined it. 
Uh, I'm not positive. I can't really speak about that truthfully because I don't really know, but I'm pretty sure he did. Mm -hmm. But then he came to me and he said, he didn't ask me. Like <laughs> normally you sit down in, in the office and maybe there's a, a if the owner's there or the, or the GM and coach and they say, we would like you to be our captain and uh, but we'd like you to think about it for a couple of days and, and give us an answer. Well, no, I mean, he just, Harold just came and said, you're our captain. So here I am at 22 years old, knowing that, you know, I probably need another year or two in the league, at least probably two before I can, you know, think about taking that responsibility on uh, because I, you know, I'm, I'm young, and, but at the same time, I'm looking at him thinking, but if I say no, he's going to trade me because that's Harold. And, you know, I'd already been traded once. I'd loved it in Toronto and, and you know, I didn't want to leave Toronto. And so, so I took it and uh, I did the best I could. I mean, and, and, and I wasn't a raw, raw guy in the room and standing up and, you know, motivate, trying to motivate uh, my teammates doing it that way. I, I kind of wanted to lead by example and have them follow me. And fortunately, I had Boria who sat right beside me in the room and he backed me up a few times when I did get up and, you know, mm -hmm. say something. And uh, so within a year, a uh, year and a half, I, I, I was very comfortable with it. Rick, your thoughts on Steve Eiserman Back in 1985, you guys uh, were on the same team uh, with Canada at the World Championships in Prague. You guys won a silver medal. And at center ice, you had Eiserman, Mario Lemieux, yeah. Ron Francis, and Bernie Nichols. Um, tell us a bit yeah. about your thoughts about playing against Steve Eiserman as uh, he was, he's 55, you're 61, so he was a little bit younger than you. But I just wonder what your thoughts are about what uh, – uh, what kind of player he was early on in his career? Well, I mean, he was pretty good from the get-go. I mean, uh, I think it took him a few years to really become the player that 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 he was. Um, but I mean, that you know, that's that's the norm. I mean, you come into the NHL at a young age, and uh, you know, it takes you a while to adjust. I mean, especially when you're coming from junior hockey, right? Right to the NHL. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a gigantic step, and uh, you know, there's a lot of adjustments that you have to make, not just on the ice but off the ice, and, and your life, and you know, you're going from living with billets to living on your own. And but I, I think he he got it pretty quickly. I think within a, within mm -hmm. a year or two, and then became. Uh, an unbelievable player and, uh, you know, eventually led them to the Stanley Cup and, uh, and then what he's done since and as a successful general manager uh, in Tampa and, and now in Detroit, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, within a, a short period of time, he'll have that organization back to the way it was uh, before as well. Rick, it's funny how sometimes things work out. Steve Eisman comes to Detroit with the Illiches and you were underneath the, um, and you wound up with Harold Ballard. In your book, you cited like three specific examples of why, you know, things didn't work with 
Ballard, you said he wouldn't hire a strong staff. So he had five coaches in seven years. You said he wouldn't pay his players well. You went from 70,000 to 180,000, but it was still, you were further down, you know, the pecking order as far as salaries there. And he said, and you said that he oftentimes wouldn't let people do their jobs. Um, That's also a factor too, isn't it? When you look at why some teams succeed and why the Leafs haven't won since like 1960, 1967. Yeah, I think that's, you know, back then there was a few teams that, uh, well, in the 80s when we went to 21 teams, there was good organizations and then there was Mm. organizations that were kind of stuck in the mud and and a lot of it had to do with the ownership. And obviously, unfortunately, we were one of those teams. And, uh, you know, the big thing, is we we don't have we didn't have control over where we went and played and and that's what uh, I think a lot of people don't understand is, you know you get drafted I happened to get drafted by Vancouver which you know that it was pretty good out there as far as the ownership and everything and then and then get traded at Toronto and of course we pre agency back then was thirty two years old and uh, like I said the owners. Uh, they had Al Eagleson in their back pocket, so they made the rules. And, and you know, uh, we were stuck with a with an owner who, like I said, he wouldn't pay for a good general manager, good coaches. Uh, I and when I say we were underpaid, I think we were underpaid compared to players on other teams that did similar things that we did. You know, I don't think on my team uh, that I was underpaid based on what other guys on our team were making. But I think based on what players that did what similar things to what I did that played on other teams were making probably double what I was. And and that was frustrating because uh, we didn't have salary disclosure because the owners wanted no part of that. And, uh, they wouldn't let Al put that in. Mind you, Al never, I don't think, ever tried because that was one of the things we wanted in 1980. Seven, I believe it was when I was on the board uh, when we were negotiating a new CBA. And we wanted three things. We wanted to get rid of the call of the waivers. We wanted free agency to be 28 and we wanted salary disclosure. We didn't get any of it. And yeah, so that's that's how the league was was run back then. And, and then you had, you know, the real guys like uh, crazy ones like Ballard who, you know, just killed everything. And, and uh, it was very, very frustrating to go through that. Uh, and like you said, five coaches in seven years, basically technically six because Dick Duff coached two games, but that was just filling in between uh, Floyd Smith and uh, Joe Crozier. But yeah, I mean, you, you have to, I mean, how many times do you see now where a team would go through five coaches in seven years? It just doesn't happen. Sure. And, uh, you know, general managers, you know, even back then, you look at, you know, the Oilers and what they did and the Islanders and teams that had good staff and good general managers and good coaches did well. And unfortunately, there was a few teams that wouldn't do that, and we were one of them. And it all, it all came back to the owner at the end of the day. Rick, just a few more questions about some Detroit angles uh, with, your, with your book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. Uh, you mentioned an incident at Joe Louis Arena in 1986. Borja Salming was cut 
Gerard Gallant skate cut salming. There was uh, um, over 200 stitches. Um, you do sort of mention, uh, you throw, there's a throwaway line too, where you say something like, well, good thing he was in Murder City because the surgeon knew how to like, um, you know, patch up people. So, and I looked up the stats in 1986 and you weren't far off because Detroit was Murder City. It was the sixth largest city, Rick, back then with 1.1 million people. It's about half that size now. And there were 646 deaths, uh, nearly three times the rate of New York. And it was the murder capital. So it was a bit of a throwaway <laughs> line there that you threw away. And uh, Detroit, of course, that's one of the uh, unfortunate images that people have of Detroit back then. But maybe you could talk a bit about that incident, what you saw on the bench, and uh, how uh, at the time the late uh, John Finley would have been the surgeon for the Red Wings uh, Jim Pengelly was the trainer, and I'm sure your your bench was just as concerned trying to get to Boria, who um, who suffered that injury. Yeah, that was pretty uh, gory and and uh, disturbing, really, uh, the whole incident. And uh, you know, of course, our medical guy uh, trainer uh, Guy Kinnear, he was a great person, but uh, he he was. Harold's boat mechanic at the marina where, where Harold kept his boat in Midland. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure he took some courses on right, you know, right. Certain, certain things, but but he also faded when he saw lots of blood. And so when Boria came to the door, or the, the door of the bench, uh, you know, I mean, of course, there's blood everywhere. And, uh, and he did, he, he faded. <laughs> and uh, our equipment guy had to grab him and take him down the hall to to the ambulance. And uh, uh, and of course, I, you know, we're sitting there and just can't believe what just happened. And um, you know, but that was the Harold Ballard era. That's what went on during the time that he uh, owned the team. It was a circus from you know. Every day something happened. Uh, you know, uh, Harold would make comments in the paper or, or whatever he would do uh, to get on the front page of the sports in, in the newspapers. And, and that was what we had to deal with. Uh, and by the way, I had no idea that it was the capital or uh, murder capital. <laughs> <laughs> well, time, it, but, uh, it wasn't a cheap it, shot. No, it was, it was factual though, Rick. So I, I, it was a throwaway line that uh, you and Scott Morrison put in there. And I just, you know, I, I'm sure some people in Detroit would be like, oh, that's not quite fair. But then, you know, if the shoe fits, right, those were the stats for, for what it's Well, it was just that, you know, around the, the, the arena, especially the, the, uh, the old Olympia, no, it was not a very good area like Chicago. The Chicago Stadium wasn't either. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I guess we just threw that in and just uh, kind of, because it was, it, I mean, even down by Joe Lewis, it, you know, there were some areas that were, you know, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, a little sketchy to be around. And, uh, you know, walking from the hotel to Joe Lewis all the time, you, you know, you were always looking over your back. And, no, it, it, it is what it is. And, uh, but 
I certainly didn't know those numbers. <laughs> Rick, I remember uh, my dad taking me to the Olympia to see Bobby Orr in a Chicago uniform, which was really rare back then. I remember getting on the bus afterwards right outside Olympia, and somebody was hit with a beer bottle, and he was on the bus and bleeding, and uh, we were afraid too. So it, it was certainly, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly some things happened back at the time. But, you know, you, you talk about um, in the book, it's, it's, it's so honest in so many ways, but, and, and nothing against Guy Kinnear. But, again, if you're hiring a boat mechanic and, you know, and somebody, you know, faints, it's not you – know, I'm not trying to make light of things, but it's just it, – it does speak to – like what chance do you guys have of winning game seven? We mentioned, you know, in 86, 87, one of your best players, you know, this power forward who's taken all this abuse and has had injuries playing, you know, how hard you played and drove to the net and, and you have a risk that you can't play. Like that would be right now, that would be front page news everywhere. There would, so I, I guess for, for fans or certainly younger fans listening, they're probably wondering, like, you had a trainer who, you know, might have been a boat mechanic who learned, you know, because Detroit had trainers way back in the, uh, you know, in the six-team league, Rick, who, you know, uh, were backup goalies and, and mm-hmm. maybe weren't as – so there's there's some context there. But, you know, your, your wrist injury, they're just two small little things, but it, it's just startling in, in my mind. Well, you know, and I think I would, and I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking back to the when we had 21 teams in the 80s after the merger with the WHA. Um, like, I, I'd be shocked if there was more than six certified trainers. Okay, that's, that's fair. It, it wasn't just Toronto. Um, it was other teams too, but uh, I think that was just a carryover from before when there was only 12 teams and then six before that, that that was just the way it was. And, you know, your trainer was a guy that really wasn't qualified and, and if he needed to, he was a backup goalie, that sort of thing. And uh, I don't think that really changed until probably late 80s, uh, when teams started to realize that, you know, we need to hire, you know, certified trainers that can look after our players. These, these guys are assets and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're paying them good money. And, um, you know, I don't think that, that that was something that a guy like Harold Ballard would, would worry about. It was, it was like, how much money can I make? And how much can I keep for myself rather than give to the players or a good general manager or a good coach. And I think that was kind of the mindset of a lot of the owners in, in the league, certainly in the 16 league and, the, and this, you know, even 12. But when you got to 21, then all of a sudden, you know, five, six uh, teams emerged as good franchises because their owners were committed to, to winning. Uh, whereas the other ones were still stuck in the mud and, and committed to making as much money as they could for, for themselves. And uh, that, that was very, very unfortunate for the players that had to play mm-hmm. in those particular cities. Rick, you also mentioned Detroit, the annual New Year's Eve game in 1981, uh, December 31st. And you just mentioned how young your defense was. And in that game, you had five 
almost underage players, Jim Benning, Bob McGill, Craig Muni, Fred Boimstruck, and Darwin McCutcheon. Muni went on, of course, with some success with the Oilers, but that's really difficult, isn't it? To throw in, say, a Mo Sider last year, or to throw in some of these young defensemen and expect them to develop properly. Well, yeah, exactly. And that, you know, that was the whole point of that was that, like I say, I mean, Harold would not pay the money to hire a good general manager. So our general manager, because he drafted these players, felt yeah. compelled that he had to get them in there and show everybody that he made good draft picks. Well, he did make good draft picks. Uh, our scouts did a good job. But those guys were put into situations to fail, not to succeed. And speaking of Craig Muni, I mean, he hardly played that many games in Toronto. He was mostly in the American League and then eventually he ended up in Edmonton and winning a bunch of cups. But, you know, Benning, Boystruck, Gary Nyland, Ally Frady. Ally Frady uh, would be the first person to tell you that he should have went back to Belleville and played two more years of junior, mm. that he would have became the defenseman that he eventually became sooner than when he did. And Jim Benning had a short career. Gary Nyland had a short career. Boimstruck had a short career. Uh, I mean, the list goes on of all the players that, you know, were brought. And I understand that Jerry, you know, probably wanted to prove that he was a good general manager. Right. They drafted well. Well, we did draft well. But, you know, the, the prudent thing and the smart thing for him to do was to send all those guys back to junior for a year, maybe two, maybe even a half a year or a year in the American Hockey League. Mm -hmm. And then those guys, they would have been good players in the National Hockey League and they would have had successful longer careers but that didn't happen and you know those guys unfortunately it hurt us as a team but it hurt them it was frustrating for me to watch because I felt so bad for those young guys sure that that were that I knew were not ready and it killed me to see that because somebody else was making that decision and, and for them and I don't believe it was the right decision uh, that they made. And, and uh, it was very unfortunate because uh, I think if those guys had gone back to junior and maybe a little bit numerically, whatever the case might have been, um, I do believe that by the mid-80s, 86, we would have been that much better. Mm -hmm. And that – didn't happen, unfortunately. So, Rick, when you look at your career, you know, I looked at your playoff stats, 54 games, and you scored 27 goals. That's every other game. But you only played 54 games in a 13-year career. What are your thoughts that you never won the Cup, Rick, and, you know, all the things that you did accomplish? Where does that rank as far as your, your overview of your career? You know, I, I, when, if I look at my whole career, I, I you know, first and foremost – I consider myself uh, very lucky and blessed to have been able to play 13 years in the best league in the world. That's the first thing. Good, um, yep. You know, that I had the ability and the work ethic to get there and stay there for 13 years. Um, what I did as far as points, goals, 
Uh, I mean, I only played 876 games, I think it was. Um, you know, managed to score basically, I mean, I think I'm 19th in NHL history in goals per game. Uh, goals per game, think, okay, yeah. And I, I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, that in the history of the entire NHL over whatever, 120-some years, uh, I am 19th overall in goals per game. And so, uh, you know, when I look back, I think, you know what, I, I, I did pretty darn good. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and considering, you know, the the, the situation in, in, uh, in Toronto with, with our owner, um, even in Chicago uh, with the Wirtz family, I mean, they were good people, but yeah, again, that was you know Bob Fulford, uh, like he threw money around like a like there were manhole covers, and, <laughs> like, and, and like it was his own money. And uh, uh, but you know, I, I I'm very proud of what I did, and despite the fact that I had the anxiety issues and and drinking on top of that, uh, I'm I'm pretty proud of what I accomplished. Um, could I have done more had I been treated properly with the anxiety problem and maybe hadn't drank as much? You know, I mean, who knows? Uh, we can always look back and think it could have been different. Maybe it wouldn't have been. Maybe it wouldn't have been any better, but uh, I would have to think that if I didn't drink, uh, I probably would have been better. Uh, but you know what, uh, you know, I, I don't dwell on those things. I, I look at it and say, look, you know what, I played 13 years in the best league in the world. I, I did a pretty darn good job of playing in that league. And, uh, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm honored and, and humbled that I was able to, you know, play for the Maple Leafs and be the captain and, and play in the National Hockey League for 13 years. Rick, once again, thanks for your time today talking about your book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. All the best now and uh, with your family during the holidays and into the new year. Well, I appreciate that, Mark, and uh, same to you, and uh, stay safe out there. Our thanks again to Rick Vive, whose book is called Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and in Life. Let's hear now from Iserman on possible roster changes and playing in front of an empty rink at Little Caesars Arena. Hey, forgive me. I jumped on a minute or two late. I mean, yep. is roster all set in your eyes or are you still poking around or what? Uh, oh, definitely. Definitely poking around. Like I, I, I say that it's like uh, I don't want you to sit there and, um, you know, waiting for us to make a move or anything like that. But, um, you know, you're always looking at ways to uh, – to get ahead or improve um, and we'll continue to do that right up until the regular season starts. So is the roster set? No. And I still, you know, you know, one of these one or two or these young kids come in and do really well. Uh, you know, that's, that's a good thing. And it forces us to make a decision. The hey, last one, and this may be out of your pay grade, but just the fans in the stands. I mean, do you expect to have, it doesn't sound like there will be any at the start of the season, right? Yeah, def, uh, I'm assuming no. You probably really know as much as we do. Um, um, you know, it really is subject to uh, to uh, local, uh, state, and I'm not sure the federal government, but, 
but state and, and local governments, and we're not there yet. I don't know if or when we'll when we'll have fans. So right now we're going into our season with uh, with the idea that we're playing in in empty arenas, um, with really not a plan, uh, you know, uh, in place and uh, for fans in the building until we know that that's a possibility. At this point, Ted, are there any UFAs, unrestricted free agents out there who could help the Red Wings? We talked about. Carolina's Sammy Votnin, he makes $4.8 million. He's 29. And you've mentioned the Islanders' Andy Green from Trenton. He's 37, making $5 million. Do we expect Eiserman to add any more players in the next couple of weeks? Well, I don't know, Mark. Good question. Uh, as we go, as the days go by, I just don't see, I mean, obviously those names are still out there, but you really do get the sense that they're pretty content now maybe with what they have. Maybe if there's a slew of injuries or whatnot. Uh, and, of course, they still have a lot of, you know, $9 million in cap space, and there are some teams who are mm-hmm. as far as a salary cap. But I think now that – especially now that the Tampa situation has settled and there was so much speculation about, you know, I always been maybe dealing with Tampa because of his familiarity there. I'm starting to lean toward the fact I don't I think what you see is what you're going to get in terms of the roster. I'd be at this point I'd be mildly surprised if they add on. Mm-hmm. And uh, frankly, um, you know, I'd like to see how this roster does. I think it's like a lot of people would be a little curious. I think there might be a chance for like we we just talked about in the last segment. I think there might be a chance for a little bit of improvement here. And Ted, what will it be like later this week with training camp? Finally, like you said, since the season was shut down by COVID in March, there have been no Red Wing games, no practices. You'll be there for practices, still some Zoom calls for interviews. What are you looking forward to? Oh, good question, Mark. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a new world. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of us are curious to see how this is going to go. And at least we're in this first part of things with training camp. Uh, it's not going to be not at all like the one in Traverse City. I mean, in this new pandemic-ravaged world, I mean, there won't be the usual one-to-one relationships with a lot of interviews with a lot of these players. Everything's going to be done in Zoom. Mm -hmm. We're miles away. We're going to be literally miles away from the locker room and whatnot. It's just going to be a little different. I mean, even in the watching practice, I think we've, we don't have all the details set yet, but it looks like there's going to be a fixed number of people able to cover practice, even something like that. I mean, there was never any curbs before. So I don't know. I think, I'll, I'll, frankly, I think, I'll, I think you, I, everybody else is ready to see some hockey, watch some hockey, and we're ready for that. But, It is going to be a different way of doing that these days. Okay, that'll do it for today's podcast, episode 42. We'll be back before the regular season gets underway on January the 14th. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.